0: Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and is affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this is our last podcast in 2019. What a great year it's been. Thanks to all you listeners out there. And we have some exciting content coming for you in 2020, so stay tuned, my peoples. And don't forget to listen to Bentley Kaplan's most recent long form on data hacking. It's stupendous. And this week... Olga Emilianova joins me to discuss her most recent progress report on the percentage of women on public company boards, how it's about more than just the financial benefits, and how Intel's decision to make all their diversity data public might be the beginning of something bigger. And then we have a hot take by Rick Marshall on what's going on at Boeing and and how this is a sign of the importance of corporate culture. Thanks again for joining us. Stay tuned. In a stunning move last week, Intel decided it was going to make public all the available data it has on who gets paid what and the gender and racial makeup of its employees. Reading through the crackling data provided by Intel makes you wonder how companies decide to make their hiring decisions. Because Intel's data isn't flattering. They have one female exec and 115 female managers to 331 male managers, an overwhelming majority of which are as white as I am. The reason this move is stunning, though, is before Intel, we mostly only got to look at what a public company's board looked like. And actually, the makeup of corporate boards is something we at MSCI ESG Research have been looking into since around 2009. And we actually just released our most recent report on the subject, written by our guest Olga and our colleague Christina Milioman. And as a scorecard for today, I'm going to read some of the top findings in the report. It's an annual report, we do it every year, and this year we found that 20% of the directors for the public companies we cover were women. That's up from 17.9% in 2018, and we saw a sizable increase in companies that had diversity mandates. Like the one found in California that says by year end, any company headquartered in California needs to have at least one woman on their board. Another finding is that the IT sector, which historically lags most other companies, has stepped up and increased the representation of females on their board, which is actually really surprising. We also found that 22% of women are on like three boards, which makes them overworked and overboarded by our definition. And so I think hearing this, many listeners might be stuck in the question of, well, don't we need as much data as Intel gave us to understand how the gender diversity and racial diversity is playing out at different companies. And I wanted to figure out if corporate boards can be a proxy for something bigger inside a company. So I posed the question to Megan Eastman, who oversees our gender diversity research. And here's what she had to say.
1: Part of the reason that we look at women on boards is that it's data that's available. It's widely available across different countries. You can get it for pretty much any company. And so that allows us to track progress. Uh, But it's also, you know, the women on boards are at high levels in the companies. And so it is something of a proxy. We've, We've done research in the past looking at representation of women among the executive ranks, among new hires, among the workforce. And found that, it, at least in general, kind of on average, that the companies that have more women in their, their upper ranks and, and management and the board are also more likely to have more gender diverse workforces and managerial forces and so on.
0: Basically, corporate boards can be a bellwether for the health of the company in general. And now... Olga joins me to give me a broader look at how our research on this subject has changed throughout the years, what the data means for the future of our economy, and what this means for companies in general as the cultural conversation continues to shift toward inclusion. Thanks so much for joining me, Olga. Let me have it.
1: Um, So it seems that we are pretty much on track on reaching 30% female participation on boards by uh, 2047. So that's a general prediction. And uh, the reason why I'm talking about 30 percent, because that's typically considered to be kind of a a threshold or tipping points that many of the stakeholders are pushing, uh, pursuing and some of the regulatory bodies are trying to enforce.
0: Just to add a quick correction there, it's actually 30 percent by 2027 and not 2047. But why 30 percent? Is it just kind of they were just like, all right, let's get 30 percent. Let's see if we can get 30 percent. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, there's been a lot of studies done, including by MSCI as well, to to see what is the significance uh, of the 30%. And although the data is not uh, exp- fully conclusive, th- there is some evidence suggesting that um, broader participation uh, of women on board uh, and past that trash, po- uh, trash point does seem to be um, linked to some of the financial performance of the companies or the operational efficiencies.
0: So one of the big things I always think about when I'm reading this type of research is how quantifying certain cultural movements might miss the bigger point. Yes, there's ample evidence out there that having a diversity of mind and body is useful in a myriad of ways, But I'm also wondering how you think these shifts affect corporate culture.
1: How it translates into culture, it's it's a good point. And actually, one of the things that we looked at, uh, but did not include in the report, is to see whether or not there is any evidence of companies pushing for more diversity as as a culture point, right? So making commitments to more diversified workforce, more diversified board, um, you know, talking about different initiatives, and then compare with the actual results. And... Because the sample was not so big, we did not include it, but I still find it quite interesting that, um, I think it was about um, 300 companies out of MSCI ACQUI index that uh, publicly disclosed their commitment to gender diversity and talked about some of the um, initiatives that they implement. And of this 300 companies, 30% had zero women on board. So to me it was, even though it's a small sample and, and it's definitely not um, inclusive of anything, it was interesting link between kind of the talk and the focus on changing the culture, influencing the culture through internal policies, and the actual performance, if you wish, the the actual participation of women.
0: So basically companies are talking a big game but not delivering, and some of the ambitions of people can and are being misused. But the conversation around diversity on boards uh, and the wider conversation um, at companies sometimes feels similar to discussions around divestment. Not not an impetus, but rather in the effect it has in the market, where you have one very loud group that says uh, divestment, for example, is an important social indicator. And there's the possibility that if enough people get mad at a company and leave, then there will be a removal of the social license for it to operate. And then you have another loud group saying but there's no evidence of divestment actually changing anything. So do you see any similarity between the two movements here, you think? Uh, not an impetus, again, uh, but rather in effect.
1: Yes, I think so. And we've seen that in many other examples where, you know, the the market has changed because of the social perceptions, not necessarily pushed by some of the financial consideration or investment initiatives So, take you know, um, tobacco, for example, and divestment from the tobacco. There have been so many pledges. There have been um, so many campaigns to exclude uh, tobacco companies from investing. Uh, It was quite successful in many ways, but we don't know what triggered the social change, right? There is a lot of very promising statistics about people quitting to smoke, but we don't know whether what part of that was driven by investment or divestment movement versus the social pressure. And I think just bringing that comparison back to the boardrooms and diversity in general, whether it's the um, regulatory push or market push, I think globally we see that the subject of diversity becomes a social pressure. And I think that social pressure is pushing companies to change the way they run business, the, the way they govern the business.
0: So you think soon it will be moot whether this is a financial benefit and will become just a requirement for companies that want to, say, attract as many high-skilled workers as possible. It's going to be a necessity for the management of human capital in general.
1: Oh, absolutely. And um, I I think it's becoming less and less about proving the financial point, right, that it actually makes financial or operational point to bring more diversity. It's becoming a social uh, aspect, that if you don't, then you become an outlier and you're not paying attention to some of those core social discussions that are happening, whether it's a racial diversity or gender diversity. It is the subject that cannot be ignored, and it's not the subject that needs to be proven by some specific financial characteristic. Only if we are able to achieve X percent return, then we're going to do this.
0: I mean, it might be possible that the companies that employ this not that they do better but the companies that don't employ this do worse maybe it's in terms of human capital maybe it's in terms of actual product i see more in terms of human capital being able to recruit good people to your company it's similar to having like a recycling program that's not going to make your company better in any kind of financial material way. But there is a possibility that if you don't have a a recycling program, an environmental program, a diversity program, that people are just like, I'm going to go to the other company that does this. This is important to my values, especially for people of a younger generation that view work symbiotically with their passion.
1: Well, it it could be in a way the, the risk of not doing something positive because Look, any company, any corporation wants to have the best talent. They want to bring the best resources and they want to get the, the best out of the resources. And if these resources are available, if there is actually a substantial pool of available resources and expertise and the company decides, no, I'm only going to be choosing from this pile, then it sends a really strong message. And I think that that's the message that could potentially translate to that Risk, reputational risk, or uh, however you call it, but you know, explicitly excluding certain demographics based on gender, based on race, from that talent pool.
0: It's just been announced that Boeing has decided to suspend the production of its infamous seven thirty seven Max airplane, and as Boeing is the number one exporter in the U.S. and it's an oligopoly. When it's in trouble, the entire U.S. economy is in trouble. What seems to have happened is that the company had a safety-first culture initially, but then it shifted and wanted to focus on profits. And that seems like it might be due to a problem with its leadership, so I decided to bring in the man that I would follow over a bridge, Rick Marshall, our corporate governance guru, to tell me about what in the blue sky is going on.
2: This is exactly why governance is so important. You've got to have board independence, you've got to have the checks and balances of board oversight in place and effective at a company of any size. But when a company gets to this size, it just becomes critical.
0: Does this change in any way how investors actually look at oligopolies or are the profits too rich for them to avoid?
2: This used to be considered a basic governance question. It wasn't too long ago that we had regulations in place that would prevent companies from becoming so large, uh, so dominant in their industry. You you know, the whole antitrust movement from um, last century and, and the problems that it was intended to address, it's all just been kind of pushed aside. And... And absent those uh, controls, absent that oversight from government, um, investors are pretty much uh, left to their own devices. you know they've got to make the call. and of course, these companies are now so big that they're they're going to appear in in you know a number of key large cap in, indexes so um, they're really unavoidable for many investors. So, it, it, you know, we've just simply taken a, a potential problem and turned it into a much more serious problem than it might have been in an earlier context.
0: Why were those regulations pushed aside?
2: Shareholder and corporate interest have come together uh, to create, you know, what may we may look back and say it was a perfect storm. Um, you know, it's in shareholders' interest to see companies get, get large enough that they're uh, able to more reliably generate profits and generate value it's been in corporates' interest to um, become more powerful to have greater command over their markets and so on i mean all of these things are sort of natural factors that you are going to see in an in an open marketplace and free marketplace um, that's why we had regulations in place to counter them it's because those were natural inclinations so um, what happened was a political environment occurred where deregulation became more acceptable. And as time went by, there was more and more deregulation. And this is one of the pieces that was deregulated most heavily.
0: Well, there's, there's a lot of discussion around how the FAA, which is the U.S. Uh, Federal Aviation Administration, was too cozy with Boeing. And they were way too entangled, the two organizations. Is that endemic to countries like the U.S., where there are a lot of monopolies controlling a lot of the market, this situation where regulators and companies are, are cozy to a point of risk?
2: It's impossible to know for sure, but it's a question that's definitely worth asking. Um, from, from a um, legislative pr- perspective, these are questions that really need to be considered anew. Um, going forward, we have a number of industries where we have similar kind of risk of damage becoming magnified by virtue of the size of the companies that dominate those industries and that's that's a, that's a tough question going forward i mean you know all of all of the issues that we've talked about around cybersecurity for example have been magnified by the fact that there are just a handful of companies that dominate the industries that that are controlling now um, enormous amounts of, of personal information um, that just it makes it all that much more difficult to, to regulate. And that's
0: it for the week. I want to thank Megan and Olga and Rick for joining me this week to talk about the news with an ESG twist. And I want to thank you all so much for listening throughout 2019. You made this podcast possible and you made my job a lot more fun, to be honest. Please stay tuned for 2020 to check out all of our new content. Have a great rest of the year and have a great new year. Talk to you soon.
3: MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc's subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or produ- product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.